phrase, part B. And, and in the first half, Paul clarifies our true identity as Christians, as saints and as the church. And so he refers to, I'm just going to do a bit of a summary for those who maybe are visiting or for those who haven't been able to follow us right through. But he refers to God's amazing grace that has been lavished on us. And he then goes on to talk about the remarkable transition that has occurred in our lives from being dead in our transgressions and in our sins, this transition that we have gone on to being made alive in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the reconciliation that we enjoy with God and with others as barriers and walls of hostility have been destroyed. And has God, through Jesus at the cross, has created this new humanity, the church, the one body of Christ that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, wherein, as Paul says, God dwells. God lives by his spirit. And as Paul highlights all of these kind of radical realities, these, as we've been saying, these cosmic scale truths, this revealed mystery. And as he paints these big pictures, he infuses all his teaching with prayer. And so he prays that all the saints would know God better. He prays that all the saints would know hope. They would know power. He prays that they would be strengthened internally, that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love, that they would grasp the full extent of God's love for them, and that they would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And kind of that is, that's the journey we have been on in those first three chapters. It's all there. And it's quite detailed. And there is a lot in it. And it is technical at times. I appreciate that. But as we come to the beginning of chapter 4, the start of the second half of the letter, it all gets practical. Because Paul starts to spell out how. How do we now live in light of our true ID. And so what you find is Paul moves from exposition to exhortation, from all that God has done to what we must do, from duty or from doctrine to duty, and from this mind-stretching theology that he's been sharing to its down-to-earth, concrete implications for everyday living. And so as a result of that, some people tend to rush to part B of Ephesians. They go straight to chapter 4. But as I said the very first week of this series, you've got to see the second half through the lens and filter of the first half. The two are integrally tied together. And therefore, having spent, I think it's about two and a half months we've spent on part A, we're now going to venture on into and carefully reflect on part B. What does it mean? What does it look like to live the Christian life? Here's how Paul puts it at the very beginning of chapter 4. We're not going to have a Bible reading this morning, primarily because I'm only going to cover three verses. I know uh, if you follow WBC News or the website, it said that I was going to look at the first 16 verses of chapter 4, 
I only got to three and then realized I'm not gonna be able to say anything more. So we'll save that for a couple of weeks time. So we're just gonna work our way through three verses this morning, but here's how chapter four starts as Paul begins to explain how we live the Christian life. He says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, what he's really saying is right. Now to live the life. Now to live the life. Now, please, let me just go back to that verse. I think I have it again here. There we go. Please don't get confused by that word calling. Some people immediately when they hear that think of the specific calling or vocation that different Christians have. And so in their heads, they head off to think in all sorts of ways, like, am I in the right job? Am I in the right place? Am I in the right relationship? No, that's not what this calling is about. This calling is of the gospel itself. The calling that we have received, that we have responded to, to believe the good news about Jesus and to be found in him. The calling that confirms we are saints, we are children, we are forgiven, and all those other 16 I am statements. This is the calling that is being referred to here. And now, says Paul, I urge you, in light of your calling to live a life worthy of it. Worthy of it. Now, to live the life. So the question is then, well, what exactly does that mean? Okay, you say, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, but what does that actually involve? What does that look like now, this afternoon? Tomorrow morning, this week, what does it look like? Well, we're gonna get very practical this morning. Very pragmatic. Because we're not left second guessing. Because in the next two verses, Paul spells it out. Now in verse four, he does go back to offering a theological basis for some of what he's about to say. And as I say, we'll get there in two weeks' time. But in the space of two relatively short verses, Paul explains exactly what is involved in living the life. To live the life worthy of the calling you've received. Here it is. If you're looking for a description of genuine Christianity, Here it is. And it may come as a bit of a surprise. Verse two. Be completely humble and gentle and be patient with one another, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, completely gentle, be patient, and bear with one another in love. If you have a New Living Translation and you're following it, here's how it says it. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. 
And so those are four attitudes. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Three of them are segments of the fruit of the Spirit. The first, humility, is a, or maybe even the, core Christian virtue. But you see this fourfold way of living? This is what it means to live the gospel-worthy life. So here's my question this morning. Are we living it? Am I living it? I can believe all I want. How do I behave? How do I live? Is there a contradiction between what I say and what I claim to believe and how I walk this out on a daily basis? Because Paul says, now, now, See in light of all I've been teaching and all I've been saying. Now, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does that look like? Be completely humble. Gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. And remember, Paul is writing to a church. So at the very least, this does start in here. It starts between us as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Of course, it doesn't end there. It's got to spill out beyond these walls. We live up, we live in, but we also live out. We've got to walk these characteristics out in our daily lives and interactions. But as Paul urges, and note, he, does, he urges, he doesn't suggest, he doesn't indicate, he doesn't recommend, he urges the saints to live a life calling, or worthy of their calling, and right up front, here's what it says. He says what it looks like. And so the question I'm just asking this morning, and I've been asking it of myself, I've reflected, how am I doing? How am I doing? As I hold up the mirror of God's word in front of me, and as we do that this morning, I want us to carefully consider for a moment and discern our reflection. What gets reflected back into your life as you hold up the mirror of God's word? So what I want to do is I want to briefly consider each of these characteristics. This is not complicated this morning. Forgive me for that. This is really simple. This is nothing new. You've probably heard everything I'm about to say before. But it really is simple. Sometimes we complicate it. Humility. What is humility? It, it's the opposite, the polar opposite of pride, the deadliest of sins. What does it mean? It means you put the other person first, thinking of his or her needs before your own. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, in humility, I want you to consider others better than yourself. Like, how hard is that? In humility, consider others better than yourself. Or the, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis's observations in his classic book, Mere Christianity, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Love that. You know, so often, 
And so sadly, it's all about me. It's all about what what I want and what I like and what I think and what I feel. And whenever that becomes the attitude, you know what happens? We easily get annoyed at other people. We're quick to point out their faults. We have a go, we take a swipe, or worse, we entertain or we harbor negative thoughts of anger and jealousy and frustration and criticism. And whenever humility is not walked out, whenever it's not lived out, whenever it's stifled in our lives and in our local churches, between believers, between saints, do you know what it does? It damages individual hearts and it creates tension and division in the corporate body of Christ. Augustine said, it was pride that changed angels into devils It is humility that makes men as angels. The Apostle Paul says, do you see the first aspect of living a life worthy of your calling, worthy of your true ID? Humility. And it's be completely humble. Completely humble. The elsewhere that I referred to a moment ago when I said, Paul said, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Many of you will know that the elsewhere that refers to is Philippians chapter two. And in that chapter, Paul says, do you know something, church? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's what your attitude should be like every single time. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And as he goes on to explain, well, what does that look like? Do you know what he says? He says, Jesus humbled himself. And if we're truly gonna live this life, then humility needs to be up front and center. And there may be times when we need to humble ourselves. There may be times when we need to eat humble pie. There may be times when I need to say, do you know something? I wanna consider you better than me far better than me. And if there's a lack of humility in my life, at any moment, then I need to listen again to Paul's urgent plea. David, as a saint, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. Be completely humble. And then secondly, be completely gentle. Gentleness is the sixth segment of the fruit of the Spirit. And and going back to Paul's prayer from last week in chapter 3, We know that we need to be empowered by the inner strength of the Spirit in order, amongst other things, to allow him to produce the fruit of his Spirit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I know we can't do this. We will not be able to do this on our own. So we need to get on our knees before God and we need to say, God, I need the inner strength of your reinforcing Holy Spirit who will produce his fruit in my life as I cooperate with him. And one of those segments 
of those nine fruit or nine segments is gentleness. And it's defined as, or here's one definition, a sensitivity of disposition and kindness of behavior that is founded in strength and is prompted by love. It's a sensitivity of disposition, of temperament, of nature, of character, a sensitivity. Kindness of behavior. It's founded in strength, and it's prompted by love. It's about caring for others. It's about being tender towards other people, not wanting to harm them in any shape or form. It's the opposite of being harsh in our words and in our actions. You see, if we're going to live out our true ID, our true and worthy calling, then we must be gentle with each other in this place. And then thirdly, and, and this is the killer one, isn't it? Patience. And be patient, and in the, in the New Living Translation, it kind of brings us out, I think, better. But be patient, not just full stop, but be patient with each other. Be patient with people, and, and that's a nightmare. Apparently, Margaret Thatcher once famously remarked, I'm extraordinarily patient, provided I get my own way in the end. And so, how long-suffering are you with people? How long-suffering are you with others? Do you find yourself easily wound up? By people? Do you find yourself pushed to breaking point more times than you care to admit? Longing to give people a piece of your mind? Or are you willing to give people the benefit of the doubt? Recognizing, do you know something? We're all a work in progress. We all need space and time to grow, to become increasingly like Jesus. I love how Paul writing to another church, not the Philippian church, not the Ephesian church, but the Colossian church, where he says this, clothe yourselves with patience. He also says we should clothe ourselves with humility and a number of other things. But he says, listen, clothe yourself with patience. In other words, you put it on. I find this profoundly challenging. This is something I've got to choose to do because I don't know about you, but I do find it far too easy to get wound up by people. And therefore, unless... I recall the need to be patient, to practice patience, to wear patience. Then do you know what happens? I leave the house underdressed. And I end up losing it with others far too quickly. And so Paul urges, you want to live this life? Here's what it looks like. Be patient. And then fourthly, and this clearly follows on, bear with one another in love. And I know we could spend forever talking about what that means, but let me keep it relatively simple because what it means here, as I understand it, is that we accept the failures and the flaws of others because we love them. Which is why in the New Living Translation it says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Do you know, we are going to get this wrong, church. We are going to get this so badly wrong. We're not always going to be humble, gentle, and patient with each other. Pride is going to creep in. Harsh words will be spoken. Impatience will spill over. 
And so we need to make allowance for that. But please hear me. We need to make allowance for that in others. But for ourselves and before God and in light of our calling and our true ID, we need to embrace Paul's plea and consider our attitude, my attitude. I have got to be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with you in love. In other words, I have got to grow more and more like Jesus, who was famously humble, gentle, patient, and loving. And ultimately, when you strip this all back, this is what Paul means. This is what it means to live the life, increasing Christ-likeness. How much more like Jesus am I today? am I compared to what I was this time last year? How much more like Jesus am I? Or did I just talk a good game? And see, even before we read on, and I know we must because in a sense, verse three flows out of verses one and two, but you see, even if I was to stop now, I would be fine. That would be more than enough of a description of genuine Christian living. And the sobering reality I've come to realize during this week and as I've sat under God's word and sat before God's word is this. David, see when you're not humble. See when you're not gentle. See when you're not patient. See when you don't bear with one another in love. You are living a life unworthy of the calling you've received. But what should we do? What can we do about it? Because as we sit under God's word and if we recognize, do you know something? If I even look back over the past 24 hours, the past week, as I reflect and realize, do you know, I'm not living the life as described here. If I'm really, really honest, do you know what we need to do? And this is where it all ties together. We need to get back on our knees before our Father in prayerful imagination. And we need to again say, Father, I need the inner strength of your Holy Spirit. I need you to plant me or replant me and ground me in your love. Father, I need you to help me to grasp the extent, the full dimension of Christ's love for me. I need you, Father, to fill me with the measure of the fullness of God. And so we just need to keep coming back and keep coming back down on our knees before our Father and saying, God, in light of all that you have done for me, in light of who I am in Christ, all those 16 I am statements, in light of that, help me to live the life worthy of the calling. I know what it looks like. And so I'm before you on my knees in prayer saying, help me, because I can't do this on my own. And then we read verse three, because here's the, the other aspect of this. Here, here's the fuller definition of what it means to be a genuine Christian, if you like. Make every effort to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's our calling. And I just want to highlight 
two critical aspects of this, one of which we've already touched on a few weeks ago. You see in chapter three, Paul has made the point that through the gospel, through the good news about Jesus, Gentile believers are now heirs together with Israel. They are now members together of one body. One new humanity, as Paul describes it. In chapter two, he talked about the reconciliation that has taken place at the cross, where those barriers I referred to earlier, those walls of hostility have come crashing down. And as a result, or consequently, as we read in chapter two, verse 18, we are being built together. Jesus is our chief cornerstone, but we are being built together to become a dwelling place, a holy temple, wherein God lives by his spirit. That is the church. And therefore, as we said a few weeks ago, unity is God's purpose which has been achieved by and through Christ. We are united together in Christ, period. And so Paul doesn't write in chapter four, please become united. Please establish unity. No, he says, and this is a core part of what it means to live a life worthy of your calling, your gospel calling. Paul pleads with them, this is what I want you to do. Don't strive to obtain unity. You are united in Christ. You are one because of Jesus. So don't strive to obtain unity. What you've got to do is you've got to strive to maintain unity. Keep the unity. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, live out of the reality of the unity that Christ has brought to you. Church unity is a vital discipleship issue. And I know we could expand this out and we could talk about unity between churches and denominations and oh, how we need to talk about that. But what Paul is particularly writing about and what he's concerned about here is the importance of maintaining unity within a local church. And this remains our calling and our key priority. We, Windsor Baptist Church, must maintain unity. And therefore, if there is a hint of relational disunity, if there is division, if there are problems between us, we have got to do what it takes to keep the unity. And tying this all together, being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, if we do that, it is going to have a massive and positive impact on our unity. But an interesting and essential aspect of this, and this is incredibly realistic, and this is why I love God's word. But look how Paul begins this sentence. Make every effort. Because Paul knows, do you know something? This is going to be tough. This isn't easy. This isn't going to come naturally. This is going to require commitment on our part. This is going to require intentionality. People are not going to see things the way we do. As you look around you this morning at your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all different. Thank God for that. But we are all different. But if we are going to maintain and protect the unity, it's going to involve effort at times. But unless we are working at it, 
unless we're making the effort to maintain and defend and develop the unity that is already ours, that we already enjoy because of Jesus, unless we are working at it, we cannot claim to be following Paul's teaching. We cannot claim to be living a life worthy of our calling. And in two weeks' time, we are going to drive this further. As we come to verse 4, and as Paul talks about there being one Lord, one faith, one baptism, seven times in the space of verses 4 to 6, Paul uses the word one to say, listen, church, we're going to live this life Unity is essential because as Jesus himself would say, it's by your love for one another that an outside world knows that you're my disciples. And so as we come to this table this morning, and Donna's gonna lead us in a moment, and as we remember a broken body And as we remember shed blood that has brought us peace, peace with God, but it has brought us peace with each other, then I invite you to consider the life you are living in light of your gospel calling. Is it worthy? Is there humility? Is there gentleness? Is there patience? Is there love? Is there unity? And as you allow God's word to speak into your heart and into your situation as you eat bread and drink wine, can I encourage you to use the space and silence to ask God, to once again search our hearts. And so we're going to sing, and then Donna's going to lead. We're going to sing, Jesus, we enthrone you. We proclaim you our king. Let me just say a quick prayer before we stand together and sing. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is my prayer that we would live a life worthy of the calling we have received. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.